0: He's gonna, gonna, you. gonna get you! He's gonna get
1: you! He's gonna get you!
0: you. Boogeyman is coming! Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. Continuing my series review and first-time exposure to Don Coscarelli's Phantasm sequels, this week my guests and I are discussing 1998's Phantasm IV, Oblivion. Picking up directly at the end of Lord of the Dead, Oblivion sees Mike and Reggie's seemingly never-ending feud with the tall man continue, as he and his minions wish to add Mike to their undead flock. Meanwhile, Mike abandons Reggie and sets off to uncover the origins of the tall man, while Reggie is rejoined briefly by Jody, who convinces him to reignite the fight and to search for Mike. But it's not just me, as I'm thrilled once again to be joined by a returning friend of the show and contributor to the likes of Fangoria, Bloody Disgusting, Manor Vellum, Rue Morgan Moore. Please join me in giving a warm welcome once again to Pat Brennan. Pat, welcome back to the show, man.
1: Hey, how's it
0: going? Not too bad. I'm really excited to chat about Oblivion, um, a film that I will be upfront in saying, you know, when you are coming into a series for the first time and, you know, as much as I've been enjoying the series thus far, Phantasm, getting into like the fourth entry of a series for the most part, this is generalizing, right? But most of the time when you start to get kind of into the weeds, if you will, of a series... Starts to be a, a little <laughs> uneven in quality, let's say, for some franchises, um, but I'm really, really excited to dive into this film that you picked in particular. You know, I usually do my sort of call to action for my uh, journalism friends to see who's interested in chatting about specific entries of a movie. And when I did the open call for Phantasm, the and, you know, this was the early days of me posting that and nobody had responded quite yet – You reached out as one of the first people and were like, oh, I would love to chat about Oblivion, um, which is the fourth entry. And it's like, again, when you think about a majority of series, it's like, who picks the fourth entry in a series? And (laughs) I did go into this film, like I said, with some skepticism, I suppose, about, you know, would this film, a fourth entry in a series with the lowest budget since the original film, would this be able to really deliver again on Phantasm's kind of unique uh, blend of horror, if you will. And I think without getting too ahead of myself, uh, it definitely succeeds more often than it fails, I think. Uh, So I'm really excited to, you know, dive into Oblivion with you and whatnot. But uh, I think to start things off, I need to pick your brain a little bit. You know, Phantasm is this very inherently kind of unique flavor of horror. I've described it um, as being probably one of the most niche horror series out there, I think, even though it has this fandom and cult status, I still feel like there's barely any people I know that outside of the first two have explored as much of the series as clearly you have, uh and I'm in the process of doing. So for you, you know, what is the quality about Phantasm that makes it uh such a standout of a horror series?
1: Well, um I've I've kind of when I was rewatching um Oblivion for this, I realized that a lot of the um characteristics of the series that I that kind of made me fall in love with it are all encapsulated in this one film. Um like for starters, obviously like the way it gets some um, kind of like dream imagery and dream logic, the way it nails that is like is perfect. Um there's something like so surreal about um about the films and and it you know it's got that like reoccurring nightmare kind of feel that uh, I I don't think I can't think of like another director who's kind of like put such an interesting spin on that theme. Um, but I also find so like okay, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of where to start here. So first of all. This movie is crazy ambitious, as is the um the Phantasm franchise as a whole. Like, so I uh, apparently the story behind this film, um, Don Coscarelli was contacted by the um by the film coloring lab that he was had been like working with for years, and uh, they said they're going out of business, but they found a bunch of cans of his old stuff. Um, and asked him to come and pick it up. So he goes and he picks up the film and it's a bunch of like scenes that have been cut from the original phantasm that were in like pristine condition. And at the same time, um, he was getting, you know, requests from, from fans about like, when's the next phantasm film going to come out? And he realized that like he wanted to make another film and he kind of needed to make another film. Um, But he knew that the budget he was going to get for this would probably be, like, half of what the third one was. Like, it was going to be pretty low. Um, so then these scenes come into his life, and he go and he starts thinking, like, okay, these are pretty great. Is there any way I could craft a story that kind of, like, works these scenes into it? Um And then he goes and he he does it. And he does it with such, like, confidence and ingenuity (laughs) that I just, like, I can't help but fall in love with it.
0: That's a great sort of primer in terms of the approach to this movie, right? Because again, the budget was only $650,000. It was straight to DVD sequel. Uh, This was, you know, after the lackluster sort of performance of Lord of the Dead, basically the studio was like, we're not interested in theatrical run anymore. And they barely supported Lord of the Dead for a theatrical run to begin with. Um, And, you know, for the I almost said for the time period, but, you know, thinking about, it's so funny when thinking about all of the different entries in this series, how much it jumps between eras, right? From 70, what was it? 79 was the first one. And then we get into the 80s and now we're in uh, the 90s, the end of the 90s. But this film in general for Phantasm Four, it has a quality that feels very 80s-esque in that it's reusing footage that had already been previously shot. Granted, we hadn't seen it, a majority of it. And yet- you know, while that is a characteristic of a lot of 80s filmmaking, you know, specifically thinking about horror films, uh, you know, (laughs) notoriously something like Friday the 13th, you know, the beginnings of so many of those movies are just the last five minutes from the previous one or something along those lines. But with this, you know, incorporating flashback footage that's clearly uh, cut footage, it still is very true to sort of the vibe of Phantasm, right? This idea that the time logic and time is very swimmy. Um, It's something that is imperfect in its sort of um, put togetherness, whether that's a result of like the bootstraps filmmaking of this series, or if it's, you know, just quite literally the uh, limited resources that they had and whatnot. And yet, you know, I said this to you before recording, I'm so enamored with these films and Coscarelli because he approaches every single entry that I've seen thus far with such a, bewildering confidence, I think, because, you know, as much as it has garnered this cult status and fandom and entertaining and people that love it for what it is, um, it is a type of film though, that is like so singular and so bizarre and most of the time shouldn't really work. And yet it does because everything is presented in a way that is very matter of fact and doesn't spend a lot of time kind of lingering in any one moment of it. It like, it's a very brisk series of films, I feel I find in the types of tones that it tackles and the types of thematics that it tackles. Um, And it just has this confidence in something that, you know, is so it's about two guys that go across the country hunting this tall man that has these dwarf minions. And there's a quad barrel shotgun put to like taped together. (laughs) Like it's, it's so over the top and ridiculous, but it has that confidence. And that really shows, I think, in the way that he brings each of these films to life
1: well and he's so ambitious too um i like thinking just of this movie alone i mean you've got that that civil war scene that he puts in um which is like apparently he could only afford um 15 minutes of a of a dolly shot (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, for the or study cam shot rather for um for Betsy. so he had 15 minutes with this you know so um they had to like block it out meticulously he incorporated like um some like civil war uh reenactors into the you know into the the set and stuff and um and then they had 15 minutes to get it right, or it was going to be a complete waste of money, which is incredible. And like the multiple timelines is super ambitious. Um, the fact that there's that one point where uh, they get that shot of um, the tall man walking down a completely deserted—I'm um, assuming it's somewhere in Hollywood—that that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like he wanted that shot really badly but didn't know how he was going to get it and then apparently what he did was for like a year he would go out um at dawn um on like during major holidays and try and find a street that would be completely deserted <laughs> um and he found eventually found this one stretch and then on Thanksgiving morning at like, 6 a.m. They got this. They had like, okay, we've got an hour <laughs> where we can. And I mean, they didn't have permits or anything either. So, sure. Um, I, I love how uh, you know, he's kind of an outlaw in that sense. Um, the way he makes his films, but um, yeah, that em am, that ambition that he has is really infectious. Um, the random bits of humor, like I I love how uh, poor Reggie is just like. <laughs> Dude can't catch a break in the in the yeah. dating department. Um,
0: <laughs> that is very much the through line for all of those films, right, is the fact that yeah. Reggie, who begins as this ice cream man that's turned into a warrior in this sort of <laughs> cosmic battle. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, like he's just in it basically for uh, the women, right? And the women are still not interested. Um, but it, it has this kind of endearing charm, I think. Um, even, I think mostly because, you know, speaking specifically about... Him and you know how he always is kind of like such a tryhard in terms of trying to get with these various women that he stumbles upon just randomly. It's always the Who thing are where always it's like, evil. <laughs> yeah, they always end up being evil too, which is you know very fitting, I think, for just how ill-advised a majority of his advances are. But it is the type of thing that kind of never goes full seventy sleazy because he ends up being the butt of the joke. Uh, every yeah. single time, right? So I think that when you talk about Coscarelli and that kind of outlaw filmmaking nature in terms of like what he's willing to do to get a shot um, and, you know, bring that vision to life, even when he returns to elements that were present in the very first film, they still feel very true to form in terms of serving those characters, right? And I think that's why as the film, you know, has these tonal ups and downs in terms of flip-flopping, right? I think with Lord of the Dead... That was the most comedic of the films, right? And it has this sort of slapstick quality to it that I don't necessarily think is a bad thing when you're, you know, the third film in a series. But it was not as in line with what I appreciate about the original two, which for Oblivion, you know, he went into this with the... You know, the idea that he wanted to return the saga back to its roots is I believe how he put it. Right. And yeah. it's very clearly a low budget sequel that's more focused in the horror and surrealist aspects. Right. Because with Phantasm Two, there was almost no surrealism in the film because that was like a studio restraint. They're like, if we're going to give you yeah. this money. You got to make something that somebody can follow. Otherwise, we're not going to get a return. <laughs> and with the limited involvement in the third film, there was a return of the dreamlike sequences but it was not nearly as vague as it was in the first film. And with this movie, it feels like a proper return to form for him in both of those regards. Um, so I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, how did this return to a more horror centric
1: phantasm uh, work for you? Um, I mean, really well, <laughs> I think one of the things that it, it, it that he does a, a great job of is um. um there's like a cosmic horror kind of vibe to it, especially at the very end um, where it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a bleak ending. It's like they're doomed to continue to live this this loop, like them and all the different iterations of them and all the ever multiverse versions of them, you know, um, which is one of the reasons why I think that, uh, that um, reuse of the footage works so well is just like what other film franchise can you think of um has like a cast of characters that are basically in all the films with the exception of like you know the blip of the dude who played mike not being in it in in part two um but overall like you get to see these dudes like kind of like age in in real life and that contrast is is uh like, the, the contrast of how much time has passed is, like, super evident between, like, the flashbacks and, and present day. And um, it, like, it gives this kind of real, not morbid sense to the horror, but it's, like... Uh, it feels like a proper journey, I think. It feels like a proper journey, and 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 it's like it's like the the mortality is, is real because these dudes are actually aging. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> it's um, yeah. Which is another thing that's really charming about about the franchise itself is is just the continuity between um, or continuity rather between um, like the cast and the fact that Coscarelli like like wrote and edited and directed most of them the well i'd say four and a half of them (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i i found like it was the headier horror in part four that hits better like that that one scene where um reggie runs afoul of a demon cop i think yes or a demon posing as a cop Um, such a fantastic sequence it's 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 wonderful, but it feels, like, weirdly shoehorned in, but it's, like, it also makes complete sense, because, like, you don't even... Like, it's supposed to be a post-apocalyptic world, but the majority of the movie takes place on a deserted desert road. Um, well, and, and the, the, you know, uh, Death Valley desert as well, but, like, that first act is, like, all just on, like, nighttime on the road, which might as well just be, you know, these, like highways in your dreams, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Before we
0: unpack that cop scene a little bit more, um, one thing that I didn't want to move on from was just the way that the film opens um, and that extended sequence also with Mike, you know, being trapped in the hearse when he's driving down this seeming never-ending highway, right? And he's dealing with basically what has always been a factor of all these films. And it's something that I think gets overlooked slightly when people talk about the film is that all of the characters are rooted in grief, right? And trauma and trying to overcome that. And that is, I think, what makes their journey as silly as it is at times. It makes all these characters be reoccurring and, you know, uh, as you said, put it, like the sort of their mortality becoming more and more apparent as they age as long Mm. as this series has been going on for. It's the type of thing that just adds extra emphasis to, you know, them being on this very righteous cause this idea that like in continuing this seemingly never ending fight that really there's no indication that it's ever going to end at any point so far in the series. Cause like, Oh, there's just a, a never ending army of tall men and his forces <sighs> grow by the, you know, hundreds or the thousands or whatever. It is yeah. this type of thing though, that the way that the film opens with, you know, not letting the audience forget all of the traumatic shit that has gone on over the course of the film. And the fact that, you know, for as comical as, you know, the central antagonist being referred to as the tall man because he's a tall man. Uh, (laughs) It is this journey that is, you know, marred in death, right? And I think that it's a quality of the tall man that unless you have, you know, gotten into the weeds of the series like we have, you know, he's basically like the plague, right? And I love that they lean into that more and more, the idea that he goes from small town to small town, robbing graves and killing people and just his forces grow. And he's targeting these small towns that outside of people that live in the immediate area, who's going to notice, especially in the era that these movies are taking place in. Um, So it is the type of thing that the fact that they are beginning this film with Mike kind of like dealing with these flashbacks of trauma and death and all of the things and starts seeing people from his journey, right? He even sees that old blind woman from the very first I film. I say, yeah. And like her popping up in the driver's seat is this very sort of heady moment where it's just like, oh, he's like in the throes of madness, especially after the end of Lord of the Dead when, you know, he gets implanted basically with an orb. And so he is, you know, in the process of being turned or changed, um, and there's yeah. this kind of duality of like, this is the mic we want to succeed, but this is also the mic that is not really Mike, or he's fighting to retain the mic that we know and love at this point.
1: Well, it's, and it's him getting like injected very much. You're talking about trauma, and it's, uh, it's the, uh, the trauma that kind of visited his life injecting itself physically into mm-hmm. like his body the way that yeah. trauma kind of does, where it does, it never leaves you. And, it always reminds you that that it's there. Um Man, that's that's one of the things that's so endearing about about Reggie. It's um, nothing like nothing's really happened to him other it's everything's it's more about things have happened to people that he loves, but mm. nothing like he hasn't I mean, he gets traumatized later when it, you know everyone <laughs> that yeah. he, he has a crush on turns out to be a demon or something, but it's it's <laughs> so endearing that he's just like Nah, Mike's a kid, and like I like Mike, and yeah. uh, I told his brother I would take care of him. Like, ah, uh, I'm gonna have. To, I don't know why he's turning into Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> uh, you know, uh. Um, <laughs> but it's it's like it's the that quality is what makes his character, um, more than just like a kind of creepy skullit, um, ice cream dude. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I mean, the way that the film opens. Right. It's a dual
0: narration between um, Mike and Reggie playing over that footage. And early on, it's Mike saying, you know, we called him the tall man and he's kind of like, we first thought he was an undertaker and then he ended up being this interdimensional demon or monster. And then you have Reggie come in and he's like, ice cream vendor by trade and now a soldier in this never ending war or something to that effect. And it's like, there is that endearing quality to the degree that. The film really doesn't shy away from its own absurdities. Like the fact that – and if anything, it's very much in on the joke, right? And I think that films that are cognizant of their history and don't shy away from it and even play it up to the degree that like they are in on the joke. Like at the very end when you have that final conflict, you have Reggie and he's like about to go to war with the tall man and he's probably going to die – And what does he do? He gets armored up and then he puts on his ice cream suit and bow tie. Like,
1: I just love those little qualities. Yeah, that's his armor. And I love that it's still perfectly white. Like, you can just see. Because I don't think there's, like, I don't think there's a lot going on behind the eyes for Reggie. Like, I think he's a very simple, simple man. With a huge heart. With a huge heart and a totally impractical weapon. Like, I love that his it's a four barrel shotgun yeah. and you could totally see he's like, what's better than two four <laughs> you dummies. But like, it's like, I love every time he has to reload that thing. Yeah. It's like, you're, you're putting four shells in that thing. That's so funny.
0: Anyway, I just love yeah. that <laughs> that gun gets more play the longer the series goes on. Cause that was one of the things like when I was chatting with my buddy about Phantasm two, um, it was like, it, it looks like this awesome apocalyptic DIY weapon and then they use it in one scene. And then every subsequent film since that it just gets used more and more and more to the degree that it's this signature weapon in the series that's just such a perfect representation of Phantasm's very singular sort of approach to horror or just world building in general. It's like, well, yeah, of course, why would he stop at two barrels? Why not four? Uh, To the degree I'm surprised it hasn't been in more like video games or pop culture in general. Granted, there's plenty of crazy shotguns and video games, but just in general, like it seems so iconic, but that again, brings me back to this notion that, uh, Phantasm is a very niche series. I think even in genre circles, right? Again, I, outside of you and maybe a handful of other people, I can't think of most people that I know that have watched all the sequels or even knew that there were sequels after two. Um, and I think that for Coscarelli, they're, that is perhaps where this the confidence he has comes from. The notion that you know, even if the budgets are getting smaller, the distribution net is getting smaller. At the same time, there's more freedom in that. And he really does mm. lean more into those more abstract or maybe sort of hardcore uh, world building little elements that wouldn't play with a large audience, probably because they'd be like, well, what is this all about? But you know, genre nerds like you and I kind of eat that shit up.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's um it's definitely not a franchise that uh that uh holds your hand, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, it's funny the 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 first time I watched um I'd I'd seen the first film a few times before this, but the first time I watched any of the sequels it was during the um the first uh the last drive in Christmas special. Uh, with Joe Bob Briggs, they they ended up doing A Phantasm Christmas, which I remember, it was so funny because a lot of people, they didn't say what they were doing, so everyone was expecting, like, oh, okay, we're going to have Black Christmas, and right. <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night, and he's like, we're watching Phantasm, and, like, so many people were pissed. But myself, so this is 2018, <laughs> and um, my wife had just given birth, like, a month before um, that special aired live, and... I was I was up with my son. He was um just under a month old and he would not sleep unless uh I was unless I was holding him. Um and if I put him down, he was going to going to wake up. <laughs> so um I popped that on and I watched uh basically most of that of that uh those, those four movies, well the four movies that that they showed. They didn't show part 2 because of uh like rights and, and mm. shit, but um, I watched most of those with my like son in my arms. And I don't know if it's because I was uh, like, especially that first year, I um, was like operating on like very, very little sleep. Um, but that that like sleep deprivation lent itself well, like incredibly to watching the Phantasm franchise, like it just um. <laughs> It was uh, it was one of the, the best movie watching experiences I think I've ever ever had watching those like back to back to back. Um, where was I going with this? I still don't get a lot of sleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was well, four years you know,
0: I'll say what you're describing is something that uh, noted friend of the show Neil Bolt, uh, who I had on last week to chat about uh, Phantasm three *Lord of the Dead*. Uh, he describes similar situations with watching films. Like that, in that it's like it's stuff that you watch at 2 a.m. when you're like sleep deprived or you're like nodding on and off, and that just that play that state of watching certain films plays really well. It, of course, helps when you have something that deals in very much like dreamlike logic, like phantasm. But in general, you know, there is something to that that really does kind of make you as you kind of are slipping in and out of consciousness at that hour. It's the type of thing where it's like (laughs) that sort of in between being awake and sort of falling asleep. Kind of plays to the thematics that these or the imagery rather that these types of films really do sort of revel in um, the idea that it's like well it's got swimmy logic because in the moment you know my recollection of uh, my state of consciousness is somewhat swimmy but that is a quality I think of Phantasm through and through through the sequels that I've seen thus far um, even if it was devoid in uh, Phantasm two. In three, there's a return to it, but it's not nearly as sort of like vague as it was in the original film. Um, But I think it's a more restrained use of dreamlike logic because it visually is engaging. And it's not so much like, did this happen or did this not happen? It's more about like the logic of scenes and the sort of reality of how a scene unfolds um, is not bound by the same constraints of the you know waking hours, which... With this film and, you know, how it has these kind of like big swings at certain points and the kind of craziness that happens, that's a really sort of opportune space for a film like this to play out in. Um, And I think that Oblivion does a good job of kind of carrying that over in a way that really does help the narrative go in probably the most interesting direction, I would say, that these movies have gone, um, which is the fact that, you know, Mike's solo journey in trying to uncover the tall man's origins – um how did you how did you find that whole section because i thought that was very intriguing for again a fourth film in a series to kind of be unpacking more of the lore of you know the film and its characters
1: i thought that part was really interesting it's it wasn't until uh they started doing that in part four that i realized like oh i actually kind of do want to know what his origins are um I and and they're so vague with it. Like, basically, we we find out that uh, let me refer to my notes that he was a dude (laughs) named Jebediah Morningside, um, who kind of sort of was an inventor. Um, turns out he was the creator of the um, like, like, interdimensional tuning fork, um, that plays uh, a role in all the films. Um, And, yeah, he created this thing, and then one night he just, I guess, just says, fuck it. I'm walking (laughs) through that thing, and I'm gonna go to some other dimension and just see what happens. Why not? I'm old as fuck. Like, what's gonna happen? If I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. Um, And he dies. um, (laughs) And I love that we don't see that. He just, he, he puts on, he has his, like, cute little bow tie on, and he walks through, and then he walks back out. He's got the tall man suit on and the pin and holding the ball in his hand an orb i should say that came out he came back with some future yeah. drip future drip looking smooth that, that reminds me <laughs> angus angus <laughs> scrims uh, strut that he does is like oh my god he really gets the um because the gate that he has in that first movie just the way that he kind of does a little bit of a hop and one arm is like swinging to the side. And yeah. I had like a professor who walked like that once. Um But I <laughs> love that he was, he still had enough of that swag going in part four to, to replicate that walk. Um But yeah, it, it, his origin, I don't know. Like it, it was like, I'm glad I think they paid just enough attention for it to be interesting but also didn't make it like an origin film or anything like it's it's um any more detail and i would have been like i don't really care you're just padding this with you know what i mean
0: yeah just just, focus
1: uh, on the on the orbs (laughs) yeah just give me some orbs and i love the idea that we don't see what happens to him when he crosses over into the dimension it's just like he's just gone and the tall man is has taken his place
0: well, what I love about another through line and to talk about how much I like the characters in these films, Angus Grimm is a national treasure. Uh, he's one yeah. of those character actors that, you know, from the very first film, he was so impactful by saying so little. He probably has like four li- four or five lines in the whole movie. And it was one of those things where he makes such an impact both in just the way in which his character is shot the Way in which his character looks, the mannerisms, and whatnot like he does so much heavy lifting with just his eyebrows, which is terrific. Um, oh, yeah, and with every single film that comes jaw, after, yeah, his jaw, like the, the way, way he, he like scowls, guts it um, out in his head. Yeah, it's a terrifically physical performance that only has him run in like one or two scenes ever in the series. Yeah. Um, but it's the type of thing that. I latch onto every single word that he says, and he just talks more and more the longer the series goes on, uh, which I just love because, you know, he's one of those guys that when you read about him, he had his basis in, I believe, was like in stage, right? He was more of a
1: theater actor before he was in Hollywood and whatnot. And also, I should correct you, I think you mean Grammy um, award-winning writer because uh, yeah. <laughs> he used to write liner notes for for Ooh. albums back when that was a, a thing when you would pick up like a jazz album and it would have like a this beautifully written almost scholarly article by like some <laughs> film critic on the back of the the album um yeah like really fascinating life also he, he has a uh kind of like a cameo in Um, the very first episode of Masters of Horror was directed by, um, Coscarelli, like the Mm. McGarris anthology, um, show. And, uh, he has this, like, kind of like episode stealing, um, scene later on in the, in the episode that is fantastic where he, like, um, he just, when you're, if, if the only thing you saw him in was, was the Phantasm franchise, The only way you'd recognize him is by his face, like his, his voice and is, is completely different. And his performance is just like really creepy, but, um, not in a, in a pervy old man sort of way. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. I would have loved to have seen him in more things because he clearly had, uh, some great acting chops on him.
0: That is such a testament again to his kind of physical presence, uh, and Coscarelli's wherewithal to be like, we have this guy and, you know, he's an older gentleman, so he's not going to be doing these super uh, labor intensive stunt work or anything like that. And I think that that is something that is really, you know, evident of a, or rather it's a quality of just the performance that's being given, but also it's making this character very imposing along non-traditional means in a horror film, right? How many, you know, the percentage is probably staggering of the amount of horror antagonists that are known for, you know, their physicality and what they're going to do to you when they get their hands on you. But with him, it's more about just his sway over this army that he's building and whatnot and how he has these telekinetic powers and whatnot. Um, And I think that part of why I latch on to everything he says is that it just, it carries so much weight because he is this almost monolithic figure at this point that it's like he says so little so you latch on to what he's saying so much more and just his delivery it kind of just like it reverberates basically through the walls of your house when you're watching it because it just it carries so much authority in it which also is just like terror inducing
1: I can't tell you how many times I've uh, said to my son boy (laughs) for various instances it was cool before Kratos did it man (laughs) great oh my god i didn't i never i never uh wow i never draw that drew that line that's incredible wow man but
0: uh you know in going from anger Scrim*, you know it's been great i think in the last two films to have the return of mike right the original actor yeah uh michael baldwin and i liked that there was more of A solo focus on him, this film, that him and Reggie spent time apart because it really does just send home the message that, you know, his character was forever changed. And unlike Reggie and Jody, right, while they were obviously younger men when this occurred, like Mike was a boy whose entire life has been shaped by the tragedy of losing his parents, in this mm-hmm. film, we have the realization: Oh no, Jody actually did die at the end of Phantasm One, which is trauma inducing gotta... <laughs> in itself, and just like his entire life being shaped by this conflict that yeah. has now come to what seems like the culmination in the final battle. Uh, it just it has this sort of warrior's arc to it that I find to be really fitting, um, and the way in which they kind of play around with his own mortality, the duality Mm -hmm. of like a foot in both worlds of still wanting to be Mike, but at the same time, you know, is
1: undergoing a change that he has little control over. Well, what even is Mike at this point? Like what, like his whole, you know, he, I forget how old he was when the tall man entered his life, but like everything that he could have been is gone. Like his whole life, adult life has been, the, um, you know, encapsulated by like death and his relationship with with the tall man. I just want to, before I forget. Um, <laughs> Jody's line after when he's dying, he's like, "I did die." The car <laughs> crash <laughs> was the most fucking funniest, <laughs> like delivery, also like just hilariously throw, like written, incredible throwaway line. Yeah, like. <laughs> um yeah anyway
0: um i will say you know before not to get too far ahead of myself with the finale like that whole chunk with jody at the very end and the realization like so much of that just feels so rushed in the degree that like we got to wrap this up we got to end this there might not be another film so we need to like put all of these different puzzle pieces together and it kind of yeah. just comes across, like that line is so hilarious because how out of left field it is. And also Jody is in barely any of this movie. He kind of comes in <laughs> right at the the 12th hour and it's like, now he's going to be the central figure of this, you know, last act. And then he's just kind of like gone almost immediately. Um, yeah. So that, that was one of those parts where I was just like, ah, kind of like just trying to get this thing out of the door at this point or they don't quite know how to end it. So they kind of have to throw this, uh, this sort of like, wrapping up of everything that uh, all the loose ends and whatnot. Um, But, you know, in terms of talking about the darker tone of the movie and also, you know, Mike being cognizant of the fact that, you know, his life has basically been ruined by this. And even if Mm. he kills the tall man, it's the type of thing where it's like, well, what do I get out of that then? Like there probably isn't much semblance of a life after that because of just how uprooting this entire ordeal has been. Um, And it does dabble. In the darker realization that, like, one of the ways that he thinks he can get out of this or basically foil the tall man's plans is that he contemplates killing himself and he actually tries to go through with the act, right? And I mm-hmm. think that, uh, granted, you know, it, it's pretty funny that he finds the rickety, rickety crate I've ever seen. It, <laughs> my, it looks like something out of like a cartoon, like, it is barely standing on but hanging on by a thread there to the degree that it's like how did he how is he even standing on this thing the way that it's got these little spindly kind of legs yeah
1: the wood is being held together by thumbtacks yeah (laughs) instead of nails it's yeah it looks like an old prospector's crate (laughs) and it's also the most like blatant harness when he's hanging yeah which always gets me with um you know when you like you see hanging scenes in films and and their legs are Like, after they die, their legs are still, like, almost at a 45-degree angle pointing behind them. And I'm like, "Eh, Mm -hmm. it's not how people look when they (laughs) hung to death. But
0: But I bring that up because it does feel that his story in particular, as, you know, messy as I think the ending is, it Hmm. feels like a natural sort of progression of his character's arc in a way. That you almost feel like, oh, well, yeah, he has to have been in all these movies, even though he wasn't in the second one. And, you know, it's very clear that Don Coscarelli knew this character through and through and sort of like mapping out this character's arc and whatnot. And just seeing Mike deal with this sort of, you know, ramifications of what his actions might have. The fact that this is perhaps a way for him to not only end the suffering of others, but to end his own suffering. Um, And that was a sort of a narrative arc for his character that as much as it made sense, I wasn't expecting it, I think, because again, when you're talking about this film and it has these tonal sort of shifts between humor and goofy bits and whatnot, it still does have a core of, you know, this feels like a real person that's going through this very, you know, unreal (laughs) situation. Um, But I think that that makes that character, you know, endearing in a different way than Reggie is made endearing to us, but all the same, you know, it's a character that have come to care for uh, throughout all of these films.
1: Yeah, and it's if there's something, um, you know, it's obviously tragic when he tries to um, kill himself to kind of sacrifice himself to stop the tall man, um, but it's also like. There's that moment, like you really get this, even though they spend the majority of their their time apart from each other in this movie, you really get a sense of the the bond between him and Reggie mm. in this. Um, because he like when he tries to kill himself, he knows that, well, if anything, this so will at least give Reggie a reason to just stop, yeah, um, and go and live, like whatever life he can he can live for himself, um. And then of course, that's not the case at the end when he's uh well <laughs> Oh that's that part when his 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 uh <laughs> the orb is is ripped from his brain um <laughs> by the tall man and he's and he's dying. Um Reggie only has revenge on his mind. Yeah. Um it's um yeah, it's it's a it's a really kind of sweet um, bond that they have, and that's why I think the um, even though there are times where that the um, the old footage can feel like a little shoehorned in, that ending I think is fantastic. Just them mm. for something um, like beautifully dreamlike about the fe- those close up shots of them in the in the ice cream truck and it's complete darkness all around them. And then they hear the echoes of themselves from the future and they, like, understand what it is, but they also don't understand what it is, but they just kind of know that, like, yeah. right now we're okay. Like, you and me, sure. we're okay together right now. And uh, I think that's, like, that's one of the things that... Uh, <laughs> that's one of the things that saves the the franchise in general is is the, the amount of heart that it has, because there are definitely... The people I know who have watched um have watched these movies and then um um tried to like or watch the first and then tried to make it into the into the sequels uh they've stopped because like the logic just makes no sense and and it's a little <laughs> too uh yeah. And, and and I think to to me that's what um that heart is what kind of Makes up for the fact that sometimes it's like it does skirt that line between, um, is this really like an artistic choice that's being made or is it like pulling stuff out of its ass? (laughs) Yes, you know what
0: I mean. You know, I think that to your point about you know this series having heart to it, that really does resonate with people. You know, one of the scenes that they use in this movie that was clearly cut from the original is that scene when Mike is, you know, young Mike from the original Phantasm. And he sees uh, Reggie driving the ice cream truck down the street and he like runs up the back of it, jumps on it and steals an ice cream and kind of just like wanders off. And you're like, oh, he's being a little shithead. And then you see uh, Reggie's reaction because he sees him in the mirror, the rearview mirror, walking away, holding the ice cream. And he's like. What the hell is that? And then he just, like, smiles and kind of, like, laughs it off and keeps going, right? And that hell shows, yeah, <laughs> like, a real... Yeah, exactly. Like, Reggie yeah. would probably do the same shit if he was in his position. But at the same Reggie time... he was probably
1: high as fuck while driving uh, well, that ice cream yeah, that, truck, let's be that,
0: real. <laughs> that's fair. I mean, if there was one job to do it, it's like, that thing goes, like, four miles an hour. But uh, <laughs> I do, not, do not condone that at all. Um, but it's the type of thing where... A scene like that for somebody that is not invested in the characters is like, oh, that's an egregious use of reusing footage. For you know, people like us that really do appreciate the characters and their relationship and their bond, that's like a sweet moment that if anything, yeah. it it's the perfect scene to reuse because in the original film at the beginning of their journey, it's kind of like, okay, it shows that they have this relationship, but it carries so much more emotional weight the fourth film in the series, all this time removed and all they've been enduring, that it plays a lot sweeter of a moment um, than I think if it had originally been used in the original film.
1: Well, and that's one of the reasons I think why all that stuff um, generally works so well is that it's, it's not um, like you said, it's not the, uh, the montage at the beginning of Friday, Friday the 13th, where you get all the shots from previous films. Like this is stuff that wasn't used. Um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't feel cheap. It doesn't feel like that, um, you know, that moment in the second Silent Night, Deadly Night, where it's just using, like, it does like a half hour long recap of the first Mm -hmm. film. Um, (laughs) and the fact that these are scenes that we haven't seen before, it once again, it lends itself so well to the, the surrealty of, of that film and the, and the franchise because you have like, all of a sudden you just have these, um... This beautiful footage of these actors that we're seeing, but twenty years younger. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's and it's it's so unique. Like, I feel like in I I wrote in my notes while watching Oblivion, like, um, is is the Phantasm franchise the the boyhood of the horror genre? <laughs> um, that's because <a, laughs> it kind of feels like that. That's a I don't great think comparison. I don't think we've had like. Anything else like that, really? Yeah. Except maybe, maybe Scream, and even that is like kind of has diverged now from, from uh, from that that path. So yeah, yeah, and that um, also,
0: you know, if you think about the first four films, like the time difference between them is not nearly as wide as Phantasm, right? And that I think is a quality that really does play to that idea of like the the endless nature of the life. Long fight against the tall man. Uh, but mm-hmm. you know, something that you'd said about you know the reusing of footage being justified, um, even in that uh, that hanging scene with Mike, right, they introduce a new scene that shows Mike and or yeah, Mike and Jody had attempted to hang the tall man. I think they like yeah. they rig a noose up to uh to Jody's car and then they just leave him hanging there. And, you know, that was a scene that, again, if it had been in the original movie, it kind of would have been like, okay, that's like not the best plan. That's very impractical, but it worked, I guess. But in this being in oblivion, you know, it shows again that, you know, there there's a connection to the actions that certain characters are taking. And it, you know, it's symbolic in a way that I thought, again, it makes the notion that Mike is about to kill himself in that way that much more sort of, you know, morose i suppose but also sort of like poetically tragic if you will um it also gives us this great moment where the tall man uh says you may not take your own life that is my domain exclusively which is such a fucking banger line that is delivered so perfectly from him um and i just again you know any moment that we get angus scrim that says more than two words it's like i'm gonna latch on to every single syllable
1: Normally the one liners are same for Reggie. I mean you've got the uh that shotgun blasts where he where he uh <laughs> shoots the, the cop through the roof and it's like blow me. Yeah. Which is delivered like like a like a nineties kind of action movie line, but it actually yeah. it has no like it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. I that I guess you're blowing him. Through the roof, I don't that came out wrong anyway, and then <laughs> uh, some we skipped cops- over
0: that though when you uh when you brought <laughs> oh, it up yeah, yeah, originally, yeah. but I love that entire sequence because you're right, it is giving Reggie his action movie moment, right? And I love that this film, I think there's two instances of that, uh, or three actually, but like giving Reggie the moment where he gets to be the star, I love, and you know, it also. Shows this side of him that's like clearly very anti authority. Um, you know, he's just like, what does he say? He's like, um, he calls him an overamped up cop when he gets pulled over. And then there's this cop that basically is a minion of the tall man, but he kind of looks like Frank from Hellraiser, which I loved, which is just like, I thought the <laughs> minions were all dwarfs. Like, what the fuck is the deal with this? Why does he look like that? But then at the same time, you have. You know, him being locked in the cop car and he can't, and you know, Reggie's always going to be somewhat of a goon. He can't figure out how to unlock the shotgun. <laughs> so he just waits till the cop is on the roof and just fucking has that awesome moment where he blows and a the, hole through him.
1: The slow look of realization on his face after he like locks himself in the car. He's like, ha yeah. And then he looks down slowly. It's like Looney Tunes. Like he looks mm. down and then he sees there's no keys in the engine. And he's like, oh, no, it's <laughs> so dumb, but so Reggie. Like, he just Pl- can't. Yeah.
0: Plus, it gives can't us Coscarelli's sort of uh, his one of his signatures as a filmmaker, which is. That man has never met a car that he did not want to blow the fuck up because this series, that is another through line for this series in that every single car that shows up at some point it's getting flipped or it's getting blown up. And I fucking, I love the man for it because we get two of those in this movie because you have that, (laughs) the cop car, and then later, you know, Reggie's brand new love that he finds uh, flips her car and then it explodes, which even has like a hilarious kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge line in it where- um he's like we got to get you away from the car it's gonna blow up she's go that only happens in action movies and then it immediately blows up behind them like i love those types of moments in this series because it's like no we can have a goofy moment and address it because we know how goofy it is but it plays so well to the characters and just the sensibilities of the series
1: yeah yeah god love reggie no this is no significance. Um or or any value. I was just going to say that I I am losing my hair um on top, and I've told my wife uh, several times that uh, when I get older and once enough of the top is gone, that I will be growing a uh, Reggie Bannister esque scarlet <laughs> ponytail. Um, what were her thoughts on that? Uh not good. Just not. <laughs> didn't <laughs> I didn't want to presume, it. but. <laughs> no she wasn't uh wasn't digging it and um i get it but at that point emily movies we'll be, we'll be together by you know it'll be so many years that like you know where's she gonna go
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's not true she could she could leave at any moment and be fine um <laughs> Oh man! Oh jeez! <laughs> my other my other retirement plan is to get a whole bunch of birds. So I'm just gonna be a dude like with just covered in birds with a skullet and ponytail. Yeah. Um, you doing the so. the
0: phantasm marathon in one sitting with just your
1: endless flock of birds? Basically, yeah. It's like <laughs> a crop It was like it would be like if uh, Reggie Bannister played the Pigeon Lady in Home Alone Two. Yes. that's, that's <laughs> what I plan on being. <laughs> Good lord! A new facet to his character. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But
0: what before we chat about the finale of the film, one scene that I do want to bring up that is a really great blending of, you know, Reggie's sensibilities as a character, you know, continuing from film to film, um, but then having really actually leaning into the more horror centric nature of this film. Um, and that is, you know, when he inevitably tries to hook up again with this gorgeous woman that he comes <laughs> across who he just assumes, you know, how could she not? Want to, you know, sleep with him, which, you know, is a fool's errand at this point. He's been on this journey long enough and has like a 0% success rate almost, uh, unless it's that monster girl that loved his bald head. Um, mm. You know, he's rolls over it the next morning and he's like, oh... Like, I'm going to make one last attempt at making a move, and there's something moving under her shirt. And then, you know, he opens up her shirt to see what it is, and there are two orbs where her breasts are supposed to be. And it's, like, such a shocking moment, I found, because, again, it is so overtly body horror, and it's out of left field. And at the same time, it's kind of, like, a nice relief that that's what it was, because at the same time, it's like, oh... Is Reggie about to like go into the full kind of 70s creep and take that up a notch because we're further in the series? But at the end of the day, he becomes the punchline to what is a really kind of like grotesque bit of practical work Um, that also gets to have him be the the sort of action star again. Because, you know, he gets to fight these things with a sledgehammer and then he has to sledgehammer her because she's been possessed. And it's just this wonderful concoction of his ill-advised horniness and uh body horror
1: <laughs> ill-advised horniness would be the name of his his autobiography um <laughs> yeah there's that mo- brief second where uh when the the um the orb boobs like pop out and you just get a brief shot of like the, the craters in her chest which are just yeah. like uh um i do love the fact that like before he so like he wakes up he looks over and then he notices that her her boobs are moving independently yeah. um, on their own under a shirt. And he's like, far out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is Which the most like, Reggie this, observation. I know. Because you'd think at this point, he'd be like, those are fucking orbs. Goddamn, yeah, right. Those are orbs, aren't they? Well, and, uh, he wasn't thinking with his head in that moment.
0: Well, no, he was thinking with the one. head, just not the one that he should have been.
1: Yeah, yeah. I do love that you were like talking about his, uh, how he doesn't understand how anyone wouldn't want this. I just immediately pictured that shot of him on the bed when he's like his his ponytail, he's let his hair, like his flowing oh, yeah. scarlet yeah. on his shoulders, and he's <laughs> just like, he's like posing on the bed. Like, yeah. oh my god, he's just the picture of manliness. <laughs> uh, man. He gets points for trying,
0: uh, but yeah. Doesn't pay off uh, unless he's dreaming, like in uh, the third film. But uh, I guess, in getting into sort of the finale of the film, I would say, as much as I enjoyed this film overall, right? Again, incredibly surprised how much I enjoyed a fourth entry in a series like this Mm -hmm. when it is, you know, dialing it back in terms of the production value, in terms of, you know, the film, filming date, uh, filming time, and everything. The finale, though, I think is the weakest part of the film for me, even though Reggie gets another little action set piece. We have that realization that Jody actually died and he's now this sort of like tall man double agent. Um, The sort of like plan that Mike has to kill the tall man doesn't really make sense. And it kind of just feels like he basically is reprogrammed an orb to be like a bomb. To kill the tall man, even though at this point we know that there's like an endless supply of tall mans since the last film.
1: I, you know what's funny? I actually we finally disagree on something. It took yeah. six episodes. I actually love <laughs> the ending of, really? um, okay. of this movie, and it's and actually rewatching it last night after it was over. I was like, God damn it! Why didn't it just end there? Like it really didn't need another. Um, like another film as as much as they're parts of uh ravager and joy it's like i i think that that i love how it's a fucking bleak ending you've got mike creating what you think is going to be this like secret weapon that they've been like using kind of like hinting towards all throughout the movie that he has some sort of like telepathic ability now and um he creates his own orb out of like engine parts of a hearse and, and yeah. programs it and shit. And then like, but then it's like, it's true. It makes no sense. The orb is only really a distraction the the actual weapon is that it, it, the, the hearse can explode. Um Which, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, that's what they had. They had a big boom. That's what they're going to do. They're yep. going to make a big boom. Um But I, I, I don't know, I just love how dark that is, that, like, he puts his best effort forward to try and finally stop the bad guy, and you think it's going to work, and then it just, like, instantaneously, as soon as the tall man's down, another tall man walks out from from a portal, rips the fucking orb from his brain, (laughs) and... He's like I'm. I'm dying, Reg, and and Reg is like I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get him, buddy. I'll I'll be back, and and you know he's not gonna be back, and he knows he's not gonna be back, and it's so fucking bleak. And then it cuts to that that footage from the original um, Phantasm of of Mike just getting on the uh, the um, the ice cream truck and young mm. Mike and young Reggie, kind of like having this nice moment of peace. Um. While we know that if it hasn't already started, it's just going to be a matter of time before the tall man shows up <laughs> in their lives and just everything, every shit just goes sour for the rest of their existence, and it's never going to get better. Like I, I don't, I don't know. I love that. I loved how. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'll say I like that portion
0: of it. Right. I think that that ends it on a note that. Even if you don't know, obviously it's implied like Reggie's hasn't been able to do much against the tall man. He shoots him with the quad <laughs> shotgun and it doesn't do fucking anything. Uh, so that's kind of like an indication of what he's capable of uh, actually doing to the tall man. But, you know, his devotion as a friend is inevitably what sends him through that portal to God knows okay. what dimension. Um, I do like that final shot of the two of them, which is a shot that kind of is bittersweet. It is pretty morbid, um, but it feels like a fitting ending to it because, you know, at the end of the day, their journey might not have had the outcome they wanted, but they had this journey together that made them inseparable, essentially, you Mm -hmm. know, except briefly when they are in this film. Um, But I think in terms of just like getting to that moment for me, it was a little too messy and kind of just like the degree where I was like, he's got these new powers, do something rad with those powers um, instead of just like, I'm going to make a bomb and blow up. But then again, that plays to Coscarelli's uh, obsession with blowing up vehicles. So it's not entirely <laughs> surprising there. Uh, but no, man, you know, that's part of what I love about having people on to chat about movies. Not everybody has to agree with me, obviously. And most people probably don't um, for
1: certain things. Man, so, you're like, I like <laughs> you're you on like about 90% of Twitter. <laughs> 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 well, that's, you're, I you know, yeah.
0: I also, it's the type of thing where, I love when people pitch me on movies or pitch me on series that I either haven't seen or wouldn't be inclined to necessarily seek out. Um, and that's mm-hmm. how I started the series review. I did a thing on Twitter mm-hmm. where I picked a bunch of movie series, and one of them was Phantasm, obviously. And you know, initially, I obviously have final say on what I'm going to cover and whatnot, but I was like, fuck it, let me throw this one into the rotation uh, of possible choices Because, you know, I want to force myself to watch something that I might not normally pursue. And thus far, you know, I haven't had a single entry in the series that I have not had fun with, or that I haven't appreciated uh, for it. You know, maybe uh, three was a little more outside the realm of what I would want from these movies, but I still had a blast watching it because those movies are just so inherently fun and in their own sort of lane in a way that is... You know, again, the, all completely the things that we've unique. been talking about. And how many series can you say that about? Series of yeah. films, not just one or two movies or three movies, but five movies. Granted, haven't seen Ravenger yet, but overall, nothing else out there is like Phantasm. And I haven't seen Ravenger, yeah. but I feel pretty confident in saying that after four films.
1: It's completely unique. I just, okay, slight rewrite of the ending. See <laughs> if this fixes, fixes it for you. Reggie... Says, I'll be right back, buddy. Walks through the the uh, interdimensional tuning fork. A second later, he walks back, and now he's tall, Reggie. <laughs> and and Mike is like, no. <laughs> huh?
0: Hey, man, I'm- you might be onto something <laughs> there. That be that would be the most fucked up deleted scene ever. If, you know, Mike is still clinging to life somehow it's, and then just tall man, Reggie comes through and his, his, uh, just
1: Reggie on stilts. Yeah.
0: <laughs> his hair is even longer too. Oh, <laughs> except he's got two, uh, two zombie babes. Cause he could only score in the
1: afterlife. Yeah. I finally done it. Mike, yeah. what am I here to do? Oh yeah. I'm going to kill you now. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But yeah, man, uh, as soon as I get around to watching uh, Ravenger, I'll be sure to hit you up and we'll chat and uh, share our thoughts on it. Because, you know, like I said, I was somewhat skeptical about going into Oblivion and this ended up being an entry that I think is uh, well worth checking out, especially obviously for fans of Phantasm. But I think more importantly... It feel even if Coscarelli maybe had said something along the lines of like, I just gotta make another sequel and I gotta make work what I got available to me at the time. It's amazing how well this turned out, I think, in terms yeah. of it just feeling like a fitting continuation, but also potentially a fitting conclusion to the series. Again, you know, that final moment I think plays really, really well. For being, you know, the end to this series in a way yeah. that, you know, you don't see the resolution, but everything leading up to this moment has not been an indication that we were going to get the typical resolution or even the resolution that we want just because of how sort of fraught this fight has been over four films.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that last shot of the headlights, like the car driving off into the distance and then the the headlights kind of getting absorbed into the darkness. Ah beautiful it's beautiful Ah,
0: bittersweet but beautiful um but yeah man it was such a pleasure having you back to chat i you know how much i always enjoy uh chatting i mean we talked for like 40 minutes before we even started recording but uh, (laughs) as always man it's always great catching up with you and uh you were the perfect person to chat in depth about uh phantasm for oblivion with so
1: thanks again man for your time anytime always a pleasure glad to talk phantasm with you Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit.
0: You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at not funny Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.